All right, well, today we get to wrap up 2 Thessalonians and this whole series we've been in since September. And uh, next week we'll start our Christmas series for the next few weeks uh, leading up to Christmas Day. And just a heads up, I don't think Chris mentioned this, uh, Christmas Day is a Sunday this year, so that means we have Christmas Day service, which is very exciting. We're, we're not going to have a Christmas Eve service this year because every six years when this comes around, uh, we just do Christmas on Christmas Day. So I know that'll make some of you sad. It'll make others of us happy. Whatever. doesn't really matter. We can't please everybody. But we are going to uh, do Christmas Day. So uh, open your gifts at 5 a.m. like usual and then come to church at 10 and it'll be, it'll be awesome. So we're going to do that this year. And uh, really hope you can join us for that if you're, if you're in town. And yeah, so uh, with that said, let's, uh, let's get into 2 Thessalonians, finish this up. This is the last chapter of this great little letter from Paul. And uh, he's, he's going to just conclude with a couple of uh, things for them to think about and work through. And again, like Paul typically does in most of his letters, he starts with theology and, and why we do what we do because of Jesus and the gospel. And then he concludes with, okay, so here's a few things to work on and, and be uh, considering in your lives. And so there's two things today that we're going to see from this letter, two, two uh, kind of action points that Paul wants this church to live within. And that is uh, really, you could say prayer is the first and productivity is the second. Uh, so prayer and productivity, these are the two things that he is going to help this church uh, shore up a little bit in their lives. And we can see this just the first uh, few verses here. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So in this first section of this chapter, we're seeing Paul call the church to prayer. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. He's been praying for them. In fact, that's where he lands in the second chapter. He concludes that chapter with uh, how he's praying for them, right? He, he basically writes out a short prayer that he's praying for this church. Back in verse 16 of chapter two, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good, uh, good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So he prays for the church, that they would know the love of God, that they would know that Jesus Christ is for them and has given them hope. This, this matters because this church has been under fire, a ton of pressure, a ton of persecution. And so he's praying for them, them to stay steady in their faith through this. And then he asked them to pray for him and for his, his partners, Timothy and Silas. And what he's asking is for them to pray for a few things. He asked for them to pray first 
that the ministry of the gospel, the word of God going forward would continue and increase. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Right, so he's praying, he wants them to pray that the work of God's word would continue to go into other places where the gospel has not been embraced and that it would be embraced and believed just as it had in Thessalonica. And when you think about Thessalonica and the first, these, these two letters that Paul wrote to this church, Paul really is just astounded that this church is doing as well as they are considering a couple of things. One, how badly they're being persecuted, right? So persecution really puts the squeeze on people and has to make the rubber hit, meet the road in our faith. And so even though this church is being persecuted uh, probably worse than most of the other churches Paul has encountered up to this point, they're still walking with Jesus, and that is an amazing thing. And secondly, Paul's amazed by this because Paul had to leave the church in Thessalonica after only a few weeks. Maybe he was there a month, maybe six weeks, but really there's no scenario where he was there for much more than that. And so Paul doesn't really get the time to establish this church like he did in Ephesus or Corinth uh, or any of the other places he traveled and started churches. And so this church, Paul, I think, was really expecting this church to be non-existent, uh, that the Christians who had come to faith through the few weeks he was with them would have abandoned the faith and walked away, but they, did, they didn't. And so he's, he's looking back on that, I think, and saying, listen, as you pray for us, as we're continuing to bring the word of God to others, uh, let's pray that this word speeds ahead and is honored as it happened among you. Uh, Paul really does see the Thessalonian church as a model of what uh, God can do in very difficult places. And I think as we, as we read this, obviously this was, these words were written thousands of years ago, uh, but we also live in a world where we want to see the gospel continue to go forward and uh, not only globally, although we certainly want to see the church expand around the world, we want to see it happen here in our own community, in our own county, in, in our state, and all, all the things, right? We, we, we should be prayerful people that the word of God would speed ahead and continue to go. And this is one of the reasons I'm so grateful to be a part of uh, the Acts 29 network. That's a part of what our church is affiliated with. We're also affiliated with the Evangelical Free Church. And both of these groups that we get to partner with are really committed to planting churches and seeing gospel communities uh, strengthened and, and uh, the word of God going all over the globe. And we, we really do get, uh, have a privilege at our church to be a part of something bigger than just ourselves. And uh, I'm encouraged by the work that God is doing all around the world, not just through Acts 29 and, uh, and the other groups that we're a part of, but through so many other uh, organizations and ministries that are preaching the gospel and bringing people into communities of faith. And so we get to, we get to pray that God continues to do this. And even though we may not always be the ones to go ourselves, although some of us may, uh, we, we have the opportunity to pray that God would do this work. And that's what Paul's asking this, this church in Thessalonica to do for him. Secondly, he, he asked them to pray in verse two. It says, and 
that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So two things here, I think Paul's asking for their prayers that God would uh, stop the persecution that's happening. Um, I don't think it's wrong for us to pray. Actually, I know it's not wrong for us to pray for, for safety uh, from uh, evil, uh, but we, we have to balance that a little bit with, with what uh, the apostles did in the book of Acts when, when the apostles were being persecuted by the Jewish leaders at uh, just a you know, matter of really months after Jesus' resurrection, uh, Peter is arrested uh, and he's, he's arrested for preaching the gospel. And then he goes, uh, he, well, he goes into jail and the, the other apostles and the other disciples are praying for him. And then God delivers him out of jail, brings him back to the apostles. And they were in the room praying for him as he's knocking on the door trying to get inside. Uh, they uh, actually thought it was his ghost because they thought it was more likely that he was killed than that God would get him out of jail, which is interesting. Uh, so they thought it was his ghost, but it wasn't his ghost. It was him. He got out of jail. Uh, and then they go and pray further. And what they're praying for is this, for boldness, right? For boldness to continue to preach the gospel in the face of persecution. And that's generally what we're called to pray for is boldness. But here we see that there is a place for us to pray for protection and protection from those who hate Jesus, but also primarily for protection of our own souls to stay faithful to Jesus. That's where Paul says at the end of verse three, that he, God, will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Our prayers should be primarily that God protects us from falling away, from trying to walk away in the midst of hard things. Because if God does take away the persecution, great. But if he doesn't, what matters more is that we stay faithful to his faithfulness. And so we're seeing here a, a call to pray for the ministry of the gospel to go forward and to pray for, the, for our own spiritual commitment to Christ in the face of temptation and difficulty. And then lastly, we see in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So two things here. I think Paul is asking this church to pray for their commitment to follow what Jesus has taught them and uh, that he would draw them deeper into his steadfastness, his, his unshakable love for them. See, we are not steadfast as, as people, right? We, we struggle, we fail, we, we sin. And, and yet what we have is a Savior who is none of those things. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't sin. Um, he is perfectly steadfast towards us. And so we should pray that our hearts are directed to his love and his steadfastness for us in Jesus. So those are the, the ways in which Paul is calling this church to prayer and how I think he's calling us to pray, that we are uh, able to follow the Lord Jesus through it all and that we would see, see more gospel work going forward into the world. 
But as we get go on from there, we actually see Paul kind of shift gears a little bit to giving them another directive. It's, it's to pray, yes, but there's something else going on in this church that needs to be worked through. And I think he actually deals with it a little bit in the first letter as well, but uh, this is a follow-up letter. So he's trying to, I think, double down on, on what he started to say in the first letter. But look at verse 6. It says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Um, so this is, this is interesting, where Paul is commanding them to do something, and that is to keep away from someone who is walking in idleness. What does that mean? Uh, well, first we need to define idleness. Uh, idleness here is actually probably not the best word, uh, the best English word to translate from this. Um, the, the King James is actually the translation that gets it the best. Um, and I don't compliment the King James that often, so take it for what it's worth, you guys. Uh, the King James did this really well. Uh, they, they translated it as disorderly. Um, the word here that's translated as idle or idleness which we would, we would understand as like inactivity or just not doing anything, it actually means unruly. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting that they choose that the modern translations, NIV, ESV, most of all, the, all of the modern translations choose idleness. Now, the reason they do is because of the broader context of what Paul's talking about. And he's talking about uh, not working, and how people are not working in the church in Thessalonica. They don't have jobs. Now, not all of them, I'm sure, but there's enough of them who don't have a job or aren't working, and they're living in idleness or disruptiveness or unruliness that Paul has to address this issue. And so I think, as I, as I studied this, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, what is... Like, I understand why the English translators choose idleness because it's connected to not work, not, not working, not having a job or a purpose. But if the, if the actual word Paul is using here means unruly or disorderly, I was trying to think about what is the connection there? How is that connected? And, and I think the answer is this, that when someone is not being productive uh, in, a, in a meaningful way through, through work or through healthy activity, uh, you're going to fill your time with something else. And you're going to fill your time not with productivity, but with disruptiveness. And so I, I think that the problem is kind of both. It's that there are people within the church in Thessalonica who are not working. They don't have jobs and there's a variety of reasons for why people think they don't have job, why the commentators think this. And some of it may have been related to their, their bad theology of Christ's return, that some thought, well, Jesus is coming back any second, so I might as well just quit my job, sell all my stuff, and just wait it out. That's possible. It could be that they had lost their jobs through becoming Christians because of persecution and then they found themselves just kind of lost and rudderless. That's possible too. 
But either way, there's a, there's a subset of this church that are in a bad spot where they're not being productive at work, so they're actually being disruptive in the church. They're, they're making life difficult for others because they have no healthy outlet for the, for the work that they're called to do and for the way that we're called to live, which is in produ- productive lives. And so Paul's calling them to avoid these people, these people who are walking in unruly, disruptive idleness, these people who are choosing not to work and instead filling their time with things that are unhealthy and unproductive and, in fact, difficult uh, for the rest of them. And so he says, hey, stay away from those people. Keep away from them. It's not going to be helpful for you. It's not going to be helpful for them. Uh, there's, a, there's an issue here. So as we continue through this, we get to see where Paul goes with this. In verse 7 through 10, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. We were not disruptive. We were not unruly. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So there's clearly, that's the issue, right? Like I said, Paul's dealing with people who are unwilling to work and and yet they're expecting everybody else to fill the gap for them. And because they're not willing to work, there seems to be uh, this this void of of, um, productive life that's in leading them to do some, some things that are disruptive to the church. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly what that entailed because Paul doesn't give us the specifics. Obviously, the church he's writing to understood what was happening, and so he didn't feel the need to tell, tell them exactly how this played out. But Paul points them to how he and, and his, uh, his ministry partners lived among them when he was with them as the example that they should follow. He says, we, we uh, taught you how to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We worked night and day as an example, he says. It's not because they didn't have the right to be there and uh, be provided for as apostles. And it's not to say that Paul didn't uh, take... Um, uh, the church's uh, support in other situations. He did in other situations. But with the Thessalonians, he didn't require them to have any, give him any support at all. He just worked uh, outside of the, the context of the church in order to provide so that they would have an example to follow. Paul probably saw some things that they needed to, uh, to see in his life so that he uh, could help them there. So Paul calls them to have productive work. And, and here's why. I think the, f- the first point he makes here in verse 7 through 10 is that work is the God-given uh, 
uh, way in which we are to provide food and other necessities for ourselves and for our families, right? If, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, there is a, a God-given order to this world, and through work, God gives us a means to provide food and other necessities for ourselves and our family. Work is the primary way in which God wants us to, to provide for what we need. That's not to say that there aren't times in our lives where we hit hard times and difficulties and we need the generosity and support of others. That, this is, that's, that's, kind of the, uh, that's an exception, not the rule though. Right? There are times when we may hit a really difficult patch and there's no shame in that. There's no guilt in that. It's the reality of living in a, in a world where things don't always work out the way we we think, and so sometimes we do need others, particularly within the community of faith, to help us. Uh, but that isn't meant to be an ongoing, continual thing that we depend on, but rather a, a, a momentary, let's meet this immediate need so that we can stay afloat and then find where to go from there. Right? We may need to live on the generosity of others for a stretch, but we shouldn't survive altogether in that place. We ought to be willing to work. Now, there are extenuating circumstances, right? Like disability, uh, you know, things that will prohibit us from actually doing that or being able to do that. Of course, Paul's not giving every scenario for every situation, but, but he's talking about our people who are able to work, but unwilling to work. And, and he says, if you're unwilling to work, then you shouldn't eat because God has given you that means by which you're able to provide for your family. So the first thing he tells us is that work is God's way of enabling us to provide for ourselves and for our immediate family. Secondly, look at verse 11 and 12. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. So he, he com- compares and contrasts something. Not being busy at work, so they're busy bodies. And I think that that's a really good play on words and he is... He's trying to help people understand that if you're not going to fill your time in productive work or doing something productive, and again, we're not talking just purely about working nine to five. I'm going to get to that in a minute here, okay? Because uh, some of you don't work outside the home. That's wonderful, and there's a place for that. I'm not just talking about the drudgery of, of nine to five or whatever. What we're talking about is having a purpose, and, and, and something that actually fills our time with meaningful, productive uh, labor, what, however that looks in, in our calling. But what he's saying here is that there's a group of people who are, not choosing, uh, who are choosing not to work, and so they're filling their time to be, by being busy bodies. Uh, they have nothing meaningful to contribute, so they're just being difficult. Right, so if you're not filling your time with something productive, you will fill it with something disruptive. That's, that's the point here. And Paul is saying that we, we need to work in order to keep ourselves 
from being busybodies. And then thirdly here, verse uh, 13 through 15, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Um, the first verse there, verse 13, I think is crucial. Paul says, as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. And I think the connection from where he's been talking about work to this verse is, is actually the third purpose of, of work as God ordains it. It is to enable us to continue doing good work for those in need and the benefit of others. That work enables us to be able to be generous and helpful and, and meet those, those needs that, that come into uh, our, our view through people's, uh, either they have lost a job or they've hit hard times, right? So for us to have a job and to have the, the money that we can use wisely and share with others is I think what we're called to do. And the Bible is very clear about this, broadly speaking, that generosity is what we're called to. Uh, you can't be generous with what you don't have though, right? And so Paul's saying you need to have that job so that you have the, the means to help others and, and don't grow weary in that calling. Um, so, so as we look at this, this passage, this passage is pray for us and then be productive people. That's really where Paul's concluding this letter with these, this church. And it's clearly a problem within this church, right? Because Paul, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, tells them to live a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands. They, they've clearly been struggling with that idea of being able to just live a quiet life, working away with a purpose and an intention. And, and so in the second letter, he follows that up again with, a, with even a stronger way of teaching them that if they're not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. If they're not willing to work, they're going to be busybodies. And if they're not willing to work, they're not going to be able to help those in need. So, as, so let's step a little bit, of, a little bit back from this and, and think about the broader issue of work. Because when I, think, I think when it comes to work, we have some misunderstandings. I think most of us, or a lot of us at times, at various times in our lives, see work as a drudgery, right? It's, what we, it's just what we have to do in order to do the things we want to do. So work is kind of a, 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 an evil, but we do it because we want to have fun with the money we make or whatever. And so we, we know we can't have any fun if we don't have money, so then we just we work for that. You know, it's working for the weekend kind of nonsense, right? Like that, that's what most of us, I think, or a lot of us have struggled with uh, at times. And there's definitely an aspect in which work can feel like drudgery. Um, but I want to remind you that work is actually something that was instilled in humanity before sin entered into the world. God put Adam and Eve in a garden called Eden and said, work it and care for it. Now, before sin entered the world, work was easy. It wasn't drudgery. It wasn't difficult. Once sin entered into the world, then work became hard. And by the sweat of our brow, we would have to make something of this. 
And so we, we need to recognize a, a broader thing here is that work is actually God's way of giving us meaning and purpose. But that doesn't mean that every job we've ever had is enjoyable, or even the job we have now may not be enjoyable for some of you. I don't know if I would, I, I, love, I love asking this question, and obviously you guys can't answer it here, but maybe after church you can tell me, because I love to hear, what's the worst job you've ever had? Uh, I, I just, I love hearing those stories, because it's, it's just really interesting. Uh, mine was probably when I worked at Six Flags. Have you ever been to Six Flags? It's a terrible place. I, and it's even worse for people who work there. Um, my, my whole job was literally pushing a button so a thing went around in circles. And so like literally, can you think of a more meaningless job than just pushing a button? Actually, actually it was two buttons because you had to be on top of it, you know, two, two fingers. Um, and it was, it was really meaningless. But every once in a while, you know, the drudgery would be broken up by some vomit that I had to clean up. And so it worked out. It was okay. I mean, no, it wasn't. It was a terrible job. Uh, I hated it. And uh, I did it because it was a job. And, uh, you know, so I get it. I get it. Like people don't always like what they're doing. And, and that's okay. You don't have to love what you do. If you can find something better, go for it, right? Like we have upward mobility in, in our world and that's a good thing. Um, but I do think that, that we need to recognize that there is a God-ordained purpose for work and we should value that. And, and by work, I, I don't, again, don't just mean nine to five. You clock in, you clock out. Um, there, I actually mean it more broadly uh, as the reformers understood it, which they used a word called vocation. Uh, and a vocation is actually from the Latin word for calling. And, and I think that the reformers, the Protestant reformers, actually rediscovered something in the, in the Reformation time that had been lost by uh, a lot of Christians up to that point. I came across a, an article from a church historian named Jean Weith, and uh, this article is just called The Protestant Work Ethic. You've probably heard that phrase at some point. Um, the Protestant Work Ethic is a lot of times credited for building this country, and um, there is a sense in which that's true. But I think that to understand what the Protestant reformers meant by work ethic is helpful. And so I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from this article, and I think it just kind of puts it all together for us. It, it says that medieval Catholicism taught that s- spiritual perfection was to be found in celibacy, poverty, and the monastic withdrawal from the world, where higher spiritual life was found. But the reformers emphasized the spiritual dimension of, li- of family life, productive labor, and cultural engagement. Vocation is simply the Latin word for calling. And according to Luther, God calls each of us to various tasks and relationships. We have vocations in the family, like marriage and parenthood. We have vocations in the workplace, employer, employee. We have vocations in culture, leaders and citizens. We also have vocations in the church, pastors and elders and congregants. But the spiritual life is not to be lived out mainly in the church and in church activities. 
Rather, when we come to church, we find the preaching of forgiveness for sins that we've committed in our vocations. Then through the word, our faith is strengthened. Our faith then bears fruit when we are sent back to our vocations and our families, our work, and our culture. Luther stressed that vocation is not first about what we do. Rather, it's about what God does through us. That God gives us this day our daily bread through the vocation of farmers, millers, bakers, and I think we would add factory workers, truck drivers, grocery store employees, the hands that make our meals. He says, God creates and cares for new life by means of vocations of mother and father, husband and wife. He protects us by means of police officers, judges, military. God brings healing primarily not through miracles, but through the vocation of doctors and other medical vocations. God teaches through teachers. He conveys his word through preachers. He gives the blessings of technology through engineers. And he creates beauty through artists. God works through all the people who do these things for us day by day. And he also works through us in whatever tasks, offices, and relationships he's called us to do. I think that was helpful. And, and I think that that's really giving, it gives more meaning to what we are called to. Whether our work is in the home, whether our work is at a job that we, we feel maybe meaningless, what we actually are doing is meaningful work because God has enabled us to use the gifts he's given for the good of others, for the good of society, for the, for the good of, of uh, our, our families. So at the very least, if you have a job that you can't stand, think of the people that you're able to support through that work, right? You may not enjoy the work itself, but at least you're getting the benefit of provision for yourself and others. And so I think that what, what the Protestant reformers rediscovered which I think largely they, they would have taken their theology from a passage like this and in and, and First Thessalonians, that, that work has meaning regardless of what kind of work it is. And that's because God has enabled us to do it. He's given us the skill set to do it and he has called us to do that within, within the, the vocations that he has given to us. So as we conclude here, um, I, I want to I talk about just Two, two more things, because a sermon is not primarily get to work, okay? Um, I think some of you may, may need that encouragement, and the, as the church in Thessalonica did. But I don't think that most of us, as I've talked to so many of you and, and know many of you, I don't think that work itself is a problem for most in this church. I think most of us value hard work. I think we're hardy people up here in Anago. What I think is the, the danger for us is not the, the value of work itself, but the, the value that we think we get from our work, the self-sufficiency we, we try to attain through our work. And I think we need to be careful here because that's the ditch on the other side of the road, that there's a ditch that says you shouldn't work or you just need to be lazy and just do whatever you want. That's obviously the problem in Thessalonica. I think our problem is the other ditch on the other side of the road, which is that work is what gives my entire life meaning. And, and that is just not true. Your purpose in life is not 
ultimately found in what you do. Your identity is not in how, how you find your work. It is in Jesus Christ who did all of the work that, he, that you and I were meant to do or were, were forced to do through our sin to reconcile us to God, work that we could never accomplish. Jesus Christ did that for us. He came into this world and he lived the sinless life that you and I never could accomplish. And he did the work before the Father to stand before him in perfection. And that he has then given freely to us all of that work and said, it's yours. It's as if you did it, even though we didn't. And and then from there, he calls us into the work of, uh, of gospel grace and the work of vocation. I think what the passage will conclude with is Ephesians chapter two. This passage is probably perfect to give us the the center of the road and not the ditches. On one hand, it says here, verse eight uh, and nine says, "For, for by grace, that is the gift of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is not, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Your salvation, your standing in Christ is not based on your works. Not your good, not your bad works. It is based purely on the grace of Jesus Christ for you. But look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now you're seeing the the true way into meaning and purpose in life. It is not purely through our work. It is actually through the work of another, Jesus Christ, who accomplished for us everything that we could not accomplish and that he gives, gives us all of that as a gift so that we don't have to stand before God on the basis of our work. But that doesn't mean he doesn't call us to good work. He calls us to good work that we live as an overflow of the work that he has accomplished for us in himself. At the end of the day, we don't find our standing before God on the basis of our works, but we are called by his grace to pursue the vocation, the calling that he has given to us. So we, we, need to, we need to guard our hearts in this. Our identity is not found in our vocation. It is found in Jesus. Our vocation we can lose. Jesus we will never lose. And, and if, we, if we find our actual identity and meaning in Jesus, then our vocation is an added blessing onto that that we get to enjoy and pursue through his enabling grace in our lives. So let me pray for us and and then we'll conclude with some singing today. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us through Jesus, that you have called us by grace into salvation apart from all the works that we do. And yet, Lord, you also call us into good works. These are not contradictory things. These, These work hand in hand, that as you have enabled us to salvation through grace, you have also enabled us to good works because of grace. And so we pray, God, that you would 
Help us where we need help today. If it's to find the meaning in our, in our vocation that you've called us to, would you give us clarity on that? If it's, if it's to find our identity in Jesus apart from our vocation, would you give us clarity for that? We pray for your help in these things and we ask that the remainder of our time would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.